0: Good morning, Hope Church. Elders, do you want me to pause a moment or continue with the message today? Or deacons? Continue, okay. I didn't quite sing with you today because this past Wednesday at Iliana Christian where I've been teaching for 30 years... We had a cross-country meet for junior high kids. And trying to keep 160 junior high kids and parents and grandparents from getting on the course, well, my throat kind of left me for a couple days. So I think we're okay today, but if you see me take a drink or something, or I start to get a little hoarse, I think you uh, hopefully bear with me. But let's take a look here today at a character that I'm going to ask you if you know who he is. So does anybody know who this man is (coughs) right here? Hint. Not Washington, but he was George Washington's friend. Who said that? Nice job, little fella. He was at the Declaration of Independence. He's one of the signers of the Declaration. Hint. By the time he dies, he's going to become the wealthiest man in all of America. And if you know your National Treasure movie... He was the last surviving signer of the Declaration. His name is Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll's his name. Now, there's a little interesting story about Charles Carroll. In fact, what's kind of interesting, too, is that there was a celebration in America a couple days ago that maybe some of you didn't even know about. Does anybody know what significance September 17 was? September 17 is Constitution Day. Yeah, way back in 1787, there in Philadelphia, the signers, many of those who signed the Declaration also worked on this brand new Constitution. So across America, believe it or not, there are schools that have off for Constitution Day. How many of you would have liked to have another federal holiday last week Friday in honor of Constitution Day? Can you advance the slide, please? Well, we celebrated at Ileana. My kids in my my honors history class, and this is actually a picture from a a year or so ago, the new one I couldn't upload fast enough. But what my kids did for that day is they wore their favorite jersey. And then, (coughs) excuse me, flip the slide again, on the back, instead of having Rizzo, Peyton, Michael Jordan, they had the name of their favorite founding forefather in honor of Constitution Day. So you see John Jay, Thomas Paine, Madison. Let's go back to the first slide, please. But here's Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll was wealthy, and he lived in Maryland. Charles Carroll was also something that was ostracized by a lot of people. He was a Roman Catholic. So even though he was wealthy, he had influence. Among a lot of the other founding forefathers, they kind of kept him at arm's length. Because he's a Roman Catholic and the rest of them are Anglican or Protestant or Quaker. And so the only colony that really accepted Roman Catholics at that time was the colony of Maryland. And in Maryland, a lot of these families, they were there for generation upon generation. Now remember, his name is Charles Carroll. So you have lots of Carrolls there in Maryland, one generation after another after another. And by the time Charles Carroll is a grown man, ready to sign the const- I'm sorry, ready to sign the declaration of independence, there's hundreds of these Charles Carrolls around. So now it comes time to have that official signing moment of the Declaration. Yep, that official signing moment. And if you remember the story, there's John Hancock, and he says, I'm gonna sign this so large that even King George can read this without his spectacles. And then he invites everyone up to come up and sign. So each member comes up and signs. Now remember what's going to happen here. When King George gets that document, every one of those signers is going to be a wanted man. Every one of those signers is going to have to give up possibly their life, their possessions, their reputation because King George is coming after them. And so now it's time for Charles Carroll to walk up to the podium. He walks up to the podium... And of course he walks past a lot of these delegates who kind of don't like him because of his Roman Catholic heritage. And he signs Charles Carroll, a very common name. King George won't even know who this Charles Carroll is, such a common name. And as he walks back to his seat, a couple of the founding forefathers, a couple of the delegates there, they snicker. And they say, he didn't give up much. The rest of us gave up everything. He didn't give up much. No one's going to know who Charles Carroll is. And with that, Charles Carroll reapproaches the podium, asks John Hancock for the quill, and he writes underneath it, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. There you go. That's my plantation. That's my address. You want to know who I am? You want to know where to find me? I just gave you my address, King George. You guys over there didn't think I gave up a whole lot? I just gave up everything. What did you give up? Did you give your address? Today we're going to look at a man that gave up a lot. Yep, his name is Nehemiah. And what did Nehemiah give up? Let's take a look here at a little bit of Nehemiah's background. A little bit of the of what we have a little context here of Nehemiah. So if we could advance the slide a few moments. Now some of you might say, Nehemiah, isn't that the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah? (laughs) Or some people say, Bill Dad, the shoe height, because if you're only as tall as a shoe, you're kind of short. Or some... Old translations say that the Apostle Peter fell asleep on his watch. If you fall asleep on your watch, aren't you? You know, this that joke plays a lot better in Lansing, folks. <laughs> but anyway, today we're gonna look here at Nehemiah. So we could have the, the slide that gives us a little bit of the background. We're gonna walk through a lot of this early, early book, and we're gonna take a look at who this guy Nehemiah is. If you want to have your own Bible, that's great. If you want to follow on the screen, uh, it's not Dawn's fault. It's my fault. I typed way too many lines on some of the slides, which might be a little hard to read. But today it's going to be story time. Now I grew up in Lansing Christian and some of you might remember Mrs. Reetfelt. Does anybody in this room remember Mrs. Reetfelt from Lansing Christian? A few back there are waving their hands. And you know what she would have for us on Friday? You probably remember Mrs. Openheim. She would have Story time, where every little kindergartner got their carpet square. And we sat down, and we had story time. So guess what we got, folks? We don't have carpet squares. We got nice chairs. But if you want to sit on the carpet, go ahead. But let's take a look. Who is this guy, Nehemiah? Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. Cupbearer. Special privilege. You are the one that gives the king his most cherished drink. You are the one who's part of the king's inner circle. If we think about like a best man at a wedding, you're the best man. Or if you want to think of governmental terms, you are probably the chief of staff. So Nehemiah holds a very, very high position. He's a civil engineer. He's an administrator. He's a defense coordinator. He's a diplomat. He's a statesman. This man has a skill set. Yet in this story, nobody's impressed with his skill set. You got to deliver. You've got to show me what you have and build trust. So as we begin reading the story here, the words of Nehemiah, chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel in Susa, where is Susa? Modern day Iraq. Hennai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. Hey, how are things going out back home? You know, a lot of us got brought out here to the Babylon area. What's going on back home? I'm really concerned about this. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Think about this. This is a slap in the face to Almighty God. That's right. Back in those times, many provinces, cities, they had their own God. And the strength of your God was oftentimes reflected in the strength of the walls of the city. How well does your God protect you? Well, guess what? The nations around are looking and saying, those are former Israelites who went off and some of them are back. They live in Jerusalem. Their God has no power. Their God has no strength. He doesn't take care of them. And think about if you're a man. If you're a man living in Jerusalem right now and you have no way to defend your family, your wives are sometimes being taken, your children are being raped, maybe sold into slavery, this is a disgrace. As a a father, you can't even protect your family. And when Nehemiah hears this, he's cut to the heart. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The chapter goes on to continue where Nehemiah keeps praying, giving God praises. And in those praises he says, I know, God, you're not going to let your people down. Somehow I know there's a, a Messiah coming. Somehow I know you're going to play this whole, this whole scenario out. I just don't know how. Think about going to a garage sale. And some of you, when you go to a garage sale, you kind of look at what you want, and there are puzzles. And if you ever want to buy a puzzle from a garage sale, you always want to know, are all the pieces there? I like the picture, but are all the pieces there? It's not what we have here. What we have here is a puzzle, and we don't know what the picture looks like. And God is guaranteeing all the puzzle pieces are there. Trust me, all the puzzle pieces are there. And Nehemiah, you've got to figure out how you're going to fit into this plan. So we jump ahead to verse 10. (coughs) And he says, don't forget these people. God, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. You gave them a promise, God. How is it going to play out? And that's when now Nehemiah is cut to the heart and he realizes he has to do something. He's been away way too long. And so he's going to approach King Artaxerxes. And when he approaches King Artaxerxes, you better have a happy face on. Because the king doesn't want any downers in his presence, but Nehemiah can't hide what's in his heart. So now we move into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, "Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill?" This can be nothing but sadness of the heart, and I was very much afraid. That's right. You don't bring you don't bring some kind of melancholy sad face in front of the king. You don't do that. But I said to the king, "May the king live forever." Why should my face not look sad when the city of my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? King Artaxerxes, the identity of my whole people is gone. It's gone. Think about here in America when people have special festivals and maybe on you know, St. Paddy's Day, people who are Irish, they want to somehow uphold their Irish heritage. You know, There's pierogi fest over in, in, in Whiting, if you've ever been to that. People love to somehow show honor to their heritage. And right now, Nehemiah says, our heritage is gone. We have no identity left. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what is it you want? God is orchestrating a change here in King Artaxerxes' heart. And Nehemiah, you know the old quote, go big or... Go home. Go big or go home. So for the next few verses, it's kind of interesting because when you read this, and hopefully you read this this week, Nehemiah starts giving grocery list after grocery list after grocery list. Give me letters so when I go back to the area of Palestine, no one's going to harass us. That they know that you are speaking to me, and that when I have your signature, it's as if you are speaking, King Artaxerxes. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. And then, go big or go home, we advance now to verse 8. And king, I want you to pay for it all. That's right, I want you to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal forest? So he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Think about that. God now is orchestrating this. Everything that Nehemiah wants is there in front of him. So now Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. And you know what's going to happen when he goes back to Jerusalem? there's going to be people there that are going to say to him, where have you been lately? (laughs) Yeah, you're second in command. Where have you been? Or there's people living there already that say, thank you for showing up. I mean, think about this. Nehemiah has to build trust. And instead of Nehemiah saying, here's letters from the king, you do what I say, no, he's going to take some personal time of reflection. And at night, he's going to do a little assessment. At night, he's going to go throughout Jerusalem with nobody watching, no fanfare, and he's going to check out all the areas of the wall that are in ruins. Every area that needs to be fixed. Let's make a little, little grocery list again here of what we need to do. And then he's going to reapproach the people. And when he reapproaches the people, he doesn't give excuses for why he's not been there. He says, chapter 2, verse 17 Then I said to them, you see the tr- trouble we're in. We're all in this together now. I left a really, really nice palace. I gave up much. And I came here to be in the rubble with you folks. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. He doesn't place blame. He doesn't finger point. He doesn't say, how come you guys haven't been getting to work already? Do you really? It, it takes me to show up here and get this thing going? No. He's getting everybody on board. He's a cheerleader. He's a cheerleader to build this church. That's right. The walls, the people of Jerusalem, that entire remnant is nothing but God's Old Testament church. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began a good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Think back to those old westerns you've watched when a new sheriff comes into town. When a new sheriff comes into town, there's always a couple of these little gang leaders out there who have a a little band of their own kind of followers. Or think about that classic movie Hoosiers. When Gene Hackman comes in as the brand new coach, the coach who's been running the show doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to give up what he's been doing. And these guys are saying, yeah, who are you? Who are you, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, in his graciousness, we're doing this. So either help us or get out of the way. I answer them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And then what happens for the next few verses, the next few chapters, you know what we read in the book of Nehemiah? We read about how everyone was pitching in. But here's what's interesting. They were pitching in where they lived. That's right. It mentions, the Bible is very clear, it mentions this family built this this section of the wall, this family built this section of the wall, this one built this family. They all built part of the wall where it was convenient. Okay, think about that. They built it where it was convenient. So as we move on to chapter 4, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. I think we've all been there. I think we've all been there in a project. Maybe it's been a house project. Maybe maybe reconstructing a garage, re- remodeling, and you get all into it. And then finally, you and your spouse say, you know what? Let's just call in the contractor. We're tired. Maybe you thought, oh, yeah, in retirement, I'm going to rebuild this car. This is great. And then after about three months into it, okay, I'm done. These people were gung-ho, but now the work is getting hard. So when the work is getting hard, I want out. How many times do we do that, people of God? We begin a new ministry. We get into it for a few months. And I don't know if I want to do this anymore. This is getting a little what? A little hard. And it becomes easy to quit. In fact... I think there's a lot of us who sometimes we, we, we have great intentions, maybe with a youth ministry or some kind of other ministry. We get into it and we get a couple negative phone calls and we're like, Dad said, i got better things to do with my time. I'm what? Amen. I'm out. Nehemiah sees that right now. He sees this waning. Verse 11. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near came up to us and told us, 10 times over, wherever you you turn, they will attack us. So now, naysayer after naysayer. Over 10 times. Time and time again. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. We told you so. This is going to fail. And the people of the remnant, the people of God, kept what? Pushing forward. How many times do we get told that? How many times do we get told as the church of Jesus Christ, let's just, why are you you beating that ministry to death? It's not going to work. And you keep pressing forward. Nehemiah keeps pressing forward. Therefore, Nehemiah's no quitter. Fine, we're being attacked, threat of attack. I'll come up with plan B. See God see God does that folks. I think we all know that. We come up with plan A and when Satan wants to somehow thwart plan A, God comes up with plan B. And then God comes up with plan C, and then D, and then E. Verse 13. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. That's right by families. So each family is responsible now. Not individuals, families are responsible. God is creating here a nation family. After I looked things over, I stood up and said, to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, will fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From, day on, from that day on, half the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, the work's extensive and spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. But whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, our God will fight for us. Okay? Wow, a lot of background, a lot of story time there. But what does it mean? Let's revisit this a little bit. Let's go back to what we talked about in chapter 1. Nehemiah here, he does four things when he finds out about what's happening to God's people. Number one. We could advance the slide. Thank you. He takes the report seriously. He doesn't dismiss it. Think about that. When somebody from your church comes to you and says, there's a ministry need, do you take it seriously? Or do you say, oh, okay, okay, I'll pray about it. Number two, he responds with empathy. He doesn't blow it off. I think there's a lot of us who sometimes say, yeah, we're going to include that in our prayer request. And as soon as we're done with our prayer request, we then look at our spouse and we say, who's, ki- who's picking the kids up tonight from soccer practice? Okay, we dismiss it. He doesn't dismiss it. In fact, what he does is he repents. He laments, Lord, I'm sorry that I haven't been paying attention. I'm sorry that I haven't been paying more attention to this problem going on. How many of us in our own churches do the same thing? Maybe we need to. Lord, wake me up a little bit. I'm sorry that I'm not thinking about this person and praying for this person as much as I should have. And finally, he does something about it. And that's our call today. So as we look at this map here, This wasn't an easy road here for Nehemiah to go down. To leave that beautiful palace. To leave all the prestige. And to now go into rubble and decay. But there's some lessons that we learn here from Nehemiah. I think I've addressed some of them already in in our time together this morning. Number one, what's the message that we learn and we see from Nehemiah? Number one, when it comes to our God and ministry, go big or what? Go home. go home. Number 2. Nehemiah believed in the promise, the remnant of Israel. We don't have we don't worry about that today. We have the luxury of looking back 2000 years and seeing how God played it all out. But now, as we as we await his second return, we got some work to do. We got some walls to build. We have some gaps to stand in. We have some bricks to lay. And the repairs, the repairs in the church of Jesus Christ today, we have no time for quitters. Okay, there's no time for quitters. Just like Nehemiah didn't have time for quitters. In the church of Jesus Christ today, there is no time for quitters. And we can't build only in front of where it's easy. I think so often we do that. We build in front of where it's easy, just like those Israelites. I'm going to build right in front of my house. (laughs) And when it comes to ministry, I'm not necessarily saying this is a bad thing, but I think we fall into this trap. We sometimes wonder, as we begin new ministry seasons, we wonder, hmm, what's going to be fun? What's going to be fun to do? What, What will be a fun ministry? When those people were building that wall there in Jerusalem, was that fun? Or was it where it was needed, where there was a protection that was needed? <clears throat> I remember the first time I became an elder at Bethel CRC in Lansing where I attend. And I remember sometimes having a different you know, lists of people who were shut-ins, and I'm thinking, you know what, I'm a teacher. I'm not good at sitting at somebody's bedside. This isn't my skill set. This is a little uncomfortable for me. I can't do this. This is too what? This is too hard. And you know what? When you shut yourself off to the Holy Spirit, it will be hard. When you open up the Holy Spirit and you let him in, you realize gifts and talents that you never had before. And you know what? Nehemiah had to bring that out of the people. He had to say, no, we can keep doing this. I know you started it, and you're all gung-ho, and then you started to wane a little bit. We can keep pressing forward. And you know what? If it's too hard, we'll start building as families to inspire each other. If, it, if there's too much worry about being attacked, we're going to have people here to protect each other. If, there's a, if, if plan A wasn't working, we're coming up with plan B. <clears throat> so now, we look at lessons Scripture teaches through stories. You're entering into a mi- new ministry season here. I'm sure the churches down the street are also going into a new ministry season. All across America, September is the new ministry season. And if this story was in scripture here, just to give us stories, well then you know what? God would have made his scripture this big. If it was just to give us narratives of what happens to the children of Israel, we'd have this much stuff. But no. We have this. Because this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This story is in Nehemiah for a purpose. And that purpose is to always remind us, living in 2021, that Christ's cross goes before us. And as his cross goes before us, we got some work to do. Ezekiel, he had prophesied about what could happen. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I wouldn't have to destroy it, but I found no one. That's right. In the time of Ezekiel, God was looking for somebody to stand in the gap. wasn't there. And Nehemiah comes back, and Nehemiah says, your God's going to restore you, and he's going to give you people to stand in the gap. When it comes to our new ministry season, number three, please, we can't make excuses. We can't say, it's not in my skill set. That's not my spiritual gift. And please, people of God, never ever use prayer as a pawn. What is that, Tom, you want me to consider being in part of this ministry? You know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to pray about it. And then you come back to that person. I think we've all done this. You know, I prayed about it. It's not for me. So now, that just tells that person there, since I prayed, you better what? You better back off now, because I prayed about it. And please, please, don't get me wrong, not to say that prayer doesn't influence us, doesn't motivate us. It does. But sometimes I think we have used prayer as a cop-out, saying, I've prayed about it. That's not in my skill set. I don't want to do it. Now you have to back off. There's a lot of you in this room who might have been employers maybe one time or maybe, you're, maybe you have a crew right now. Maybe you have people who work for you. And you love those employees that where you tell them do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, they do it. But then there's those employees that you really love because once they get the list done, they go and see work that still needs to be done. See the work. When it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ and doing ministry in the church, yes, sometimes you know we stand there like soldiers waiting for some drill sergeant to look for volunteers. But you know what? Sometimes go and look for the work. Go and see the work that has to be done. Go and see the the, the holes in the wall that need to be filled. And stand in the gap and be bricklayers. And you know what happens when you're bricklayers? The Spirit fills you and you want to lay more bricks. That's what happens when you're a bricklayer. Now, some of you might say, hey, you know, you know what, Jeff? You said some wonderful things today about br- being bricklayers, but guess what? I'm I'm kind of old. My body doesn't work, you know, doesn't work like it used to. My time is spent going to doctor appointment after doctor appointment after doctor appointment. You know what? then you be a soldier. Because like what we read in Nehemiah, there were some that were laying bricks and there were some that were there with a sword defending those people. And if this church is going to start laying bricks in this new ministry season, you better believe there's going to be those attackers out there. There's going to be the devil out there that wants to find the weakness in that wall. And that's why there's some of you in this room who say, I can't build bricks, but I can be a soldier. And my prayers can be warrior-like. And my prayers can wield the sword of the Spirit. So if you can't be a bricklayer, then you better be a soldier. The great thing about what we see here in being a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ is what we see in the end of the book of Revelation. The final impact is we know the end game. We know the end game. But we also know that God will give us success. Just as Nehemiah said, our God will give us success. Our God expects us to do some work. I was, uh, got a confession. I'm older than 50, so I play with the Facebook. The Facebook. Some of you young kids are like, well, yeah, Facebook's for old people. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because I saw about two weeks ago, I saw somebody I know pretty well. She she had written a very, very powerful statement. I'm sure you've seen some of these kind of statements where she is incredibly worried about her teenage children and the lives that they're growing up in right now. What does the future have for my child right now? What's it going to be like 30 years from now for my child? Well, let me tell you something, folks. I've studied history a long time, and I can tell you that every generation since the beginning of of Jesus' ministry, every generation since then has said, we must be living in the end times. And every generation, as God has protected his remnant, every generation from 2,000 years ago till now, God has fitted for a very unique purpose. He's given people talent, and he's been given people skill sets to do his work. And for those kids, those high school kids that I see every day, They're growing up in a time right now that's a very unique time because God is preparing them now. They were born into this era not out of fear, but because God has a plan and he's preparing them with a unique skill set right now to build bricks and to be soldiers. So if you believe in God's sovereignty, you better believe that there should be no fear about our kids living in today's age and what will come 20, thirty years down the road, like Nehemiah was built, was that remnant was unique for that time, this remnant is unique for our time as well. The Christian Reformed Church has wonderful doctrines, wonderful pieces that we hold dear to from the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession. And in a contemporary version of how to live for today, The Christian Reformed Church developed our world belongs to God. And in the statement number 33, it talks about these people who who are living today and what God has in store for every one of us in this room, young and old, with no fear of what comes down the road. People of God, can we recite this together? The Spirit's gifts are here to stay in rich variety. Fitting responses to timely needs. We thankfully see each other as gifted members of fellowship, which delights in the creative spirit's work. He gives more than enough to each believer for God's praise and our neighbor's welfare. (coughs) Last slide, please. Here are those signers of the declaration. And in one of the closing statements, it says here in the Declaration of Independence, it says this It says, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually give to each other or pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. Do we as the Church of Jesus Christ pledge to each other to give our lives? our fortunes, our sacred honor? Do we pledge to each other, you build a brick, I'll hold a sword. Or I'll, I'll build a brick, you hold a sword. I'll stand in the gap. Because there will come a time in which the God of all grace looks at us, young and old, and we pray that he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You gave up much. You gave up much. I'd invite the praise team to come forward. We are going to look at going forward here, not with a prayer, but with a song that should be sung as a prayer. A song that should be sung as a prayer while we build bricks and we stand in the gap. Please, let's stand. Mm -hmm. lead on, O King. See sí.